Well, here we are, week number two in the life of Trinity Church. Week number two in our sermon series through Mark. Today's passage, we get our first taste of Jesus in action. Last week, we talked about how Mark was presenting Jesus as a king, come to establish a kingdom here and now and and in him, a kingdom that had been promised from ages past. It was a kingdom in which Jesus demands submission from, uh, from all people. Submission in the form of repentance and faith. A trust not in any competing sovereign, but only in Him. And, and in the passage we look at today, we see Mark showing us things from the life of Jesus that make Him worth submitting to. Here, Mark is trying to make a case that this Jesus is the Son of God. This week, as I was getting ready to, uh, to, to preach this message, actually, the preparations got me thinking about Christmas, which, by my count, is only about 90 days away. So, there's that. October starts this week, so I imagine Cool Springs Mall will have Christmas carols going by next weekend to remind you of the shopping that lies ahead of you. The reason, uh, the very specific reason that it's got me thinking about Christmas is that a few years ago, Lindsay was teaching a class at church of, I think it was three-year-olds. And, you know, they spend like the whole month of December talking about the baby Jesus, right? Talking about the the story of his birth and and all the things that are associated with it make it important. And those three-year-olds, she would tell me, just really connect with the baby Jesus. They love him. Almost counterproductively, they connect with the baby Jesus so that he becomes, the baby Jesus becomes the answer to pretty much any question that you ask. So who made you? The baby Jesus! You know, they scream. Uh, and then by the time Easter rolls around, they still think Jesus is a baby, right? They haven't connected with the fact that he's grown up now and now he's going to the cross and, and he's, he's rising from the dead. He's still a baby in their minds, right? And that's, I guess that's excusable for three-year-olds. Uh, but what, what, what's got me thinking about that this week is, is how much... Sometimes we as adults connect better with the baby Jesus than we do with the full-grown Jesus who makes demands of you, right? Who doesn't like themes like peace on earth and goodwill towards men and, and a Savior come to save His people from their sins? Who wouldn't connect with those things? But it's harder to swallow the adult Jesus that Mark gives us who comes making demands, who comes saying things like, uh, that, 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 that challenge our autonomy as individuals and that call us to submit. Jesus is all the things that are embedded in the Christmas story, but he's also confronting us with a need to repent and calling for our exclusive allegiance to his kingdom in place of all competing authorities. This is the thrust of the stories that Mark tells in the passage we're going to look at today. Uh, And what I hope that you'll see by the end of the passage is that Jesus' authority, even though it's absolute and even though it is irreplaceable in any other source, it brings not oppression. It doesn't stifle us as individuals. But actually, when we embrace his authority, it sets us free. Jesus' authority sets us free. I want to do three things today. I want want to first... Look at the stories that Mark tells to make the simple point that Jesus brought a superhuman authority when he came to earth preaching the kingdom. Jesus brought superhuman authority. Then I want to talk more about what that authority looks like in practice for Jesus. What, in other words, does he use his authority to do or to accomplish? 
And then finally, what, what impact does the authority that Jesus comes preaching and calling you to submit to, what does it have, what kind of impact does it have on your life? What does it look like, in other words, for you to submit to that authority? Those are the three things I want to do today, beginning with, with the first couple stories. So a uh, place to start is to simply read the passage. Would you mind standing with me as we read together from Mark chapter 1? We're going to uh, read verses 16 through 45. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 45. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is God's word. You may be seated. So in story number one, Jesus doesn't come like we might expect him to come as one who's proclaiming a kingdom. He doesn't go into the into the governor's palace in Galilee in a town pretty close to the one where we see him first speaking. Uh, he, he doesn't begin with a mass of adoring followers. He doesn't begin in the temple in Jerusalem. 
and he just walks into this little fishing village on the on the sea of the coast of the Sea of Galilee, right up to a couple guys that, as far as Mark is concerned, may as well have been random. These guys were there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, plying the trade that their fathers and their fathers' fathers probably uh, worked at before them. They were casting these nets out into the sea, nets that would have had weights on them that would have been like a parachute effect that would have gone down and, and captured traps and fish under it. They'd dive down in and they'd, they'd, they'd tie it up and swim back. And they'd probably done that every day since they were old enough to, to swim. There they were. And Jesus just walks up and calls them to follow him. Follow me, he tells them, and I will make you fishers of men. And he appeals to their profession. He uses an analogy that they'd probably connect with right away. And the same basic events are repeated with, with, with uh, James and John later. And here's the key. I think our familiarity with this story dulls the effect, the stark effect, even, even the shocking effect that it should have on us. It's hard for us here in America to appreciate what it would have been like to live in a patriarchal society where you didn't get to pick what you were. You didn't just up and change careers on a whim. You were born probably into the same profession that your family had been in uh, for generations, maybe even for hundreds of years. And you lived that way. You just did. It's tempting to preach this passage as one more uh, example of radical commitment of Jesus' disciples, right? To call us to a similar radical commitment that's willing to leave everything, to even to, to, to be foolish, in fact, as followers of Jesus. And that's true. That is a good and, and legitimate interpretation, I think, application of this passage. But I don't think that's Mark's main point. I think when he tells this story, the shocking value of the story for him, given where it's placed in between him telling us about Jesus preaching the kingdom, coming with authority, and what's about to happen after this, in between those two things, Mark is telling us something about Jesus and the reaction we should have to this story as these men leave everything they had ever known to follow him on, on a dime is a point about Jesus. In this flow of the story, the amazing thing isn't that they left everything, but that Jesus is the kind of person who spoke with a kind of authority that could cause men to leave everything. What kind of man was this? That with a word, he leads lifelong fishermen to abandon everything that they know. The next stories make this same point even more clearly. The remarkable extent of his authority is seen as Jesus enters the synagogue presumably on the same day. He walks in with his followers into a synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, synagogues were there because the temple was a long ways away. And then you didn't go there every day, for your, every week for your worship. You'd go to the synagogue because you couldn't do much else on the Sabbath, and you would go there to hear teaching, right? There's a place to learn about the law and about the traditions that had built up interpreting that law. And the scribes were the people who knew those things backwards and forwards and were responsible for teaching. So Jesus goes in. And presumably he's teaching, just like a scribe would. But look at how the people respond to him. Verse 22 says they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Because we know what's coming with the scribes, because we know that they're going to be some of Jesus' most, uh, most, most difficult opponents, we're, we're, I think we instinctively read this as a slam on the scribes. That people were upset with the scribes, you know, that they didn't get anything out of their teaching. And Jesus actually teaches them something. But I don't think yet we're supposed to see that about them. They were very respected. 
they, they're teaching people came because they expected to get something out of what the scribes said. The point is that even these respected teachers of God's law paled in comparison to whatever it was that Jesus said. Mark doesn't tell us. The point is that he said something that shocked them. They were astonished, we're told. Presumably, they recognize that this guy doesn't speak on the authority of others who have written about the law. He speaks with the authority of God himself. When he speaks, they know they saw instinctively, even maybe in ways they couldn't put words to, that God speaks. The next story in the synagogue, immediately, Mark tells us, a guy comes up possessed with a demon. And immediately calls Jesus out. What are you doing here? What do we have to do with you? Are you going to destroy us? And with a word, the same effective word that called fishermen away from, their, uh, from what they had done throughout their entire lives, the same effective word that, that spoke from God in a way that astonished those who, those who heard, that word, he speaks and the demon flees. He's silent. He has nothing with which to respond. When Jesus speaks to his disciples, when he speaks in the synagogue, when he speaks to the demons, it's not normal. And those who were in the synagogue recognize this immediately. Verse 27 tells us they responded, what is this? A new teaching with authority. This demon story and the teaching, they're interrelated. The fact is when this guy speaks, something happens. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. His is an empty theoretical talk, but when he talks about the kingdom of God being here, when he speaks it, the kingdom is here, and you see the effects of it instantly. I think Mark's treatment here echoes those amazing, beautiful words of Psalm 33, where the psalmist writes of God, He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. His words, in other words, accomplish their effect. He has remarkable, astonishing authority. Jesus brought superhuman authority. That's Mark's point. And this is where Jesus can be a little difficult to swallow for us. Uh, we're all, in various ways, products of an anti-authoritarian culture. A time and place in America, given our history, given the kinds of things we read and watch... Uh, given the kinds of options we have to shop at places like Walmart without anybody telling us where to, what to buy and, 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 and where to go, it's hard for us to be confronted with someone who makes these kinds of authoritative demands. Politically, we struggle with the idea of authority because we all cut our teeth in elementary school on stories of the founding fathers, right, who, who can't tolerate the tyranny of the British government, and so they, they throw off these shackles and establish a new government in freedom. Now it's campaign season, right? So we're all subjected to these cheesy commercials with bluegrass music in the background telling you that these opponents are no better than King George. And if you vote for me, I'll restore to you the freedoms that our fathers bought with their blood, right? We don't like authority. And this is true on the, it, it's true on the left as much as on the right. On the left, they don't like the Patriot Act. On the right, they don't like things like universal health care. All of, all of them, different policies, but based the, the, the favor or disfavor for them is based on whether or not our freedoms, our, our ability to be autonomous, to not have someone stepping on, our, uh, on, on what we can and can't do, that's, that's where they're rooted, right? Whatever the position is. Culturally, the same images apply. Uh, 
culturally, when we think of authority, we see these old grainy black and white photos of Hitler and people walking in that, that goose step in front of him. Authoritarian, totalitarian authority is what we see. We see maybe some slave driver in Uncle Tom's cabin, or we think about Cinderella's stepmother, or, or maybe if you're a fan of The Office, you think about Dwight Schrute. These are the images of authority that are in our minds from the culture that we're just taking in. And religiously, it's, it's often the same way. We think about images of TV preachers using their authority that they somehow gain for themselves through their words to prey on the most vulnerable. Or we think about Catholic priests who abuse the, the children under their care or the prelates who look the other way or covered it up. We think about maybe a, a local church that you've been a part of with a pastor who was on a power trip and used the authority that people gave him to, for his own personal gain. Bottom line is we are infused in our thinking just almost, so that in a way that shapes even our instincts to think that authority is inherently, necessarily oppressive. It's capricious, it's self-serving, it's cruel, and at the very least, it promises to squelch our uniqueness as individuals. That, though, is not at all the image of the authority of God in His kingdom and the authority that Jesus came to institute and the authority that we see Jesus using, exercising in the stories that Mark has given us. So we've seen that Jesus brought superhuman authority. What I want to do now, as we continue to look at the stories Mark tells us, is, is, is try to probe more deeply into the kind of authority that Jesus is using for what purposes to what ends. Jesus' authority is an authority that liberates. That's the bottom line. In the next stories, we see Jesus exercising his authority in some very specific ways to, to crush the power of evil, his authority he uses to heal the sick out of his compassion, and preeminently, he uses his authority to call people to himself in repentance and faith. In some, though, his authority is a redemptive authority. It's about the restoration of a deeply broken relationship between the God who created all things and the things that he's made. Ultimately, this is the kingdom that Jesus preaches, and it's the king that he, kingdom he came to establish through his superhuman authority. And in these next stories, we get themes that are going to emerge throughout the Gospel of Mark as we continue. So, first, Jesus uses his authority to crush the power of evil. This was foreshadowed last week in the passage we looked at, where Jesus goes out to the wilderness. He, he's driven out to the wilderness, we're told, by the Spirit to do battle with Satan, to conquer him in a way that Adam had proved unable to conquer him. Now we get the first of what will be several stories of demons doing battle with Jesus and Jesus annihilating them with a mere word. We've already looked at it some. The point is that the demons get the significance of his coming. That demon sees Jesus coming and says, have you come to destroy us? He knew that he had and Jesus speaks and this individual is liberated. Don't forget about we get caught up in the demon uh, and, and, in, and in Jesus' interaction with him, but there was a person in, involved in this story who was shackled, 
by evil that he couldn't throw off. Maybe even in the same way we often feel shackled by sin that seems too big for us to conquer. And Jesus uses his divine authority in this story to liberate that person from the power of evil. And that's going to happen again and again. It happens even later in this text where we get a summary from Mark about them bringing people for healing and for, for exorcisms uh, when, he's, when he's at the house of, of Peter or Simon. Jesus came to crush the power of evil and liberate those who were under its power. What we also see is that his is an authority to heal, guided by his compassion. I think it's a beautiful juxtaposition between the power we see in his showdown with the powers of evil and the tenderness that we see in the way that he reacts to those who are afflicted by disease. Jesus' authority is complex. When we think of authority, we, go, we oftentimes will go to one exclusive image of authority, a Hitler kind of authority. We don't understand that there are ways of using it, that it can be complex based on the situation. And Jesus is a great model of that. In some cases, he speaks and he crushes When he encounters those who are sick, he speaks gently, softly, no less efficaciously, and he touches them and and heals them. We see it with Simon's mother-in-law, who's suffering with illness, suffering with a fever. He heals her. He touches her immediately. She's completely healed so that she can even serve them. We see it that once, when once the word gets out, they're bringing the whole town to him. Mark says the whole town is at his door, and he's doing these healings and exorcisms for them. But the best insight that we get comes in his healing of the leper in verses 40 through 45. This is a story that occurs after Jesus has left uh, Capernaum. He's got, he wants to get out a little bit more into the region uh, around Galilee and, um, and, and begin to preach. And at some, somehow this leper finds his way to Jesus, fights through the crowds presumably around him, and, and falls down before him pleading for healing. Leprosy was widespread in this region during this time. There's lots of references to it in the Bible, but there's also references in other texts that were written around this same time. And, and as a word, it could refer to any number of skin diseases. But if, if, if what this guy had was what we know as leprosy proper today, it was a devastating disease. The flesh literally rotted away. And with the loss of nerves came an inability to avoid other injuries. A lot of times what, the injuries that would happen to your extremities, to your hands or your feet, based on the fact that you couldn't feel pain and react to it, were worse than, than the, the effect of the skin disease itself. So physically it was devastating, but even worse than that, it was socially devastating because there was a strong and ancient stigma attached to this very contagious uh, skin disease. They didn't know how it was spread. They thought they probably had all of these theories about touching or, or sharing garments or whatever. Bottom line was they completely ostracized the person who suffered from this disease. They, uh, they, they, they believed in the Mosaic law that touching a leper made that person unclean, the one who had been touched and required this ritual cleansing. And they were literally cast out of society, They created these camps for them, for lepers, outside of the city where they had to, to stay until they either died or somehow recovered from the disease. They were completely outcast. Jesus' encounter with this man is beautiful. It's a testimony to his deep compassion for those suffering with the world's brokenness. 
We see this man fall down pleading before Jesus. And, and in his words, there's already a strong note of faith. He doesn't question whether or not Jesus can heal him. He asks if he will heal him. His authority as the Son of God and the, the power that comes with that authority, that's already been established. The only question is how he will use it and to what ends. You, if you will, can clean me. Will he? Is that what he came to use his authority to do? That's the question Mark is raising for his readers as the story unfolds. And Jesus' words, direct, very terse, but beautiful. I will be clean. Immediately, the words have the effect that they intended. Jesus touches him, and where anyone else touching this man, the uncleanness would pass to them. When Jesus touches him, the direction is reversed and cleansing, complete, powerful, absolute cleansing passes from Jesus to this man who, who had been cast out from all other human society. There's no magic incantation here. There's no potions that he makes available for a fee. He doesn't pray over him as Moses prayed over Miriam when she was afflicted with leprosy. He doesn't tell him to wash seven times in the Jordan as Elisha told the, the, the Syrian general to do. Jesus just speaks. He's not Elisha. He isn't Moses. He is the Son of God. And when he speaks, his words have their intended effect. Perhaps the most remarkable insight into the goal behind Jesus' authority appears in the fact that he doesn't want the fame that comes to him as a result of his miracles. This is not some TV charlatan who asserts his authority for wealth or fame. In, in fact, what we get here is our first look at one of the distinctive themes in Mark, which is Jesus telling people not to tell others what he's done for them, somehow wanting to hide his identity or his, his power from, from other people. You're familiar with these passages probably. You've come across them and wondered maybe why he was telling them that. And there's lots of ink that has been spilled for, for decades among New Testament historians who get their, their, their PhDs by coming up with a theory about why Jesus was so quiet on this subject. I think the best explanation, though, is that Jesus knows the crowds don't understand who he really is. And why he came. They adore him while they can get what they want out of him. But they don't grasp the significance of his kingdom. We're going to get more insight into this later. We're going to talk about it in depth in some other passages where the, where the theme uh, appears. But for now, the best explanation of Jesus telling the demons not to speak. And telling the leper not to go and, and spread this word. Is his own words to his disciples. When his disciples come to find him as he's gone out to pray, they come to tell him that the crowds are looking for him. Presumably the disciples are, are thinking, this is great. They're finally coming and responding to the words that you're speaking. Don't you want to come back to where these people love you? What are you doing out here in the desert? And Jesus tells him, he tells him, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. You see, Jesus came first and foremost for people to call them to submission to his kingdom. He wouldn't turn away from exercising compassion to someone who was in need and, and was in front of him, but his goal, what he was going out to do, was to announce and inaugurate the kingdom of God. He was here to restore the relationship between God and his people, which means that he came to preach. He came to call individuals to submit to his kingdom, and he came to die as a ransom that makes a kingdom full of sinners possible. 
That's why, if you remember back to that first story about the disciples, he came after them. Where in this era, if you wanted to attach yourself to a teacher, to a rabbi, you had to go and apply to that rabbi. You went after him and tried to make yourself look attractive. You sought after him. Jesus seeks after his followers. He came for people. And he calls his disciples to be fishers of men. So we've seen that Jesus came bringing superhuman authority and that this authority isn't the kind of Hitler authority maybe you're thinking of, naturally. It's an authority to, to, to crush evil, an authority to heal, and ultimately authority to call people to himself, to submit to his kingdom and be restored to a relationship with God. So how does this intersect with your life? Jesus, what does Jesus' authority have to do with you? And what would it look like for you to submit to his kingdom. I think Jesus' call for repentance and faith is where the reality of his authority intersects directly with you. He's not here anymore casting out demons or healing lepers, but his call to repentance and faith is every bit as real and present now as it was then. And perhaps this is actually where you're hung up. You like the idea of crushing evil. Maybe you like the idea of healing the sick, but you don't like the idea of submitting your life to him. There's a little, at least a little bit of that in all of us, whether we admit it or recognize it or not. If you're struggling with the idea of submission, if your autonomy as an individual is central to who you are and how you find meaning in your life, then, then what I would ask you is simply this. What happens when you fail? What happens when you don't meet up to the standards that you've set for yourself or to the standards that maybe other people who matter to you have set for you? If your autonomy is what you have to assert, if you feel compelled to that, then you've got no one else to blame or to fall back on when things don't go the way that you intended. Autonomy is, is really just another form of isolation. You're left to yourself to build your own kingdom, to succeed or to fall on your own merit, your own ability. We had a dog one time that used to get this byproduct of authority. Lindsay and I had a really short-lived career as dog owners a while back, and uh, despite sound advice that we received from multiple sources, we didn't establish dominance over this dog until uh, it was too late. And he had already developed the strong conviction that he was in charge of everything that happened in our house. There were lots of really negative byproducts of this complex that he had, Part of me thought that he even sadistically enjoyed the privileges of his self-rule. But ultimately, what we really began to see is what people told us to expect to see, that it stressed him out. That he never was able to relax. He was never able to rest because he thought that everything that happened in our house was his responsibility. He thought that our safety was, was up to him. And when we left the room, he would go crazy. And not because he missed the companionship that we had with him. He, he went crazy because he couldn't control what was going to happen to us in that other room. At least that's what I'm told by people who know dogs. It could be that you're not totally unlike our dog. That you're trying to live 
so hard. You're trying to live your own life and order your world in a way that makes you acceptable to God and other people in a way that establishes your value and gives you significance. Maybe that kingdom is your kids and they have to turn out in a certain way for you to feel like you have succeeded as a person. Maybe your kingdom is your career and there's some status that you give anything to attain or that you're terrified to lose. Maybe it's some person or people in general whose assessment of you is what you use to base who you are in this world. I don't, I don't know what it is, but maybe you're exactly like our dog and you're feeling the stress and the anxiety that comes from your own self-rule in your kingdom. What I want you to understand based on Mark's portrait of Jesus' authority is that the call to submit to him is not a call to squelch your individuality and your autonomy as a person. It's a call to find rest in him. It is ultimately Jesus asserting a right to rule over you and to be the supreme authority in your life. And Jesus refuses to coexist with any other competing allegiances. He won't tolerate it. And that's true. And, you, and there's nothing that I would say, can say or should say to make that any less stark to you today. It's an authority that demands you take sin seriously and commit to fighting it with the help of others. But it is also a call to rest Elsewhere, Jesus calls for us to put his yoke on. Matthew chapter 11, you know that beautiful text? Jesus says to put my yoke upon you. A yoke is a device for guidance, for leadership, for for bearing a load. And no, free-ranging isn't possible for cattle that are put into yokes. That isn't an option. But the call to share Jesus' yoke is a call to rest in him and And it's a burden that he makes light because he bears it for you. In his yoke, he guides you and he bears the burden for you. He is pleasing to God on your behalf. He overthrows the powers of evil and sin that you can't conquer. And he gives you the spirit to renew your soul and to give you strength to seek holiness. So that's why Paul can say where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The call to submit to Jesus' authority is not a call to give away your, your autonomy or your uniqueness as an individual. It's, it's, it's not a call to live as a robot. It's a call to rest. He promises peace and fulfillment that you can't conjure up on your own. He promises the only acceptance that really matters. So what does it look like in practice for you to submit to his authority? It, it starts really with this belief with a, 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 whole, a rest of your whole person on him that stakes your identity in him and, what he, and not in what you can do for yourself. It means checking yourself for the telltale signs of self-rule, signs like anxiety and fear and pride. But this kind of submission to Jesus' authority would also show itself in your treatment of other people. When Jesus is your king, when your identity comes from your citizenship in his kingdom, in a kingdom in which you are already accepted by God through Jesus, you're free to stop spending your energy trying to build your own kingdom, trying to prove yourself that you have some unique value, and you're free to turn your life towards the needs of others. Likely, submitting to Jesus' rule over your life would look a whole lot like what Jesus' actions look like when he was here on earth. Now, you're not going to have the power to cast out demons or to heal the sick with a touch, but there are hurting people who's, who, who, who have the same need for compassion that Christ showed to them when he was here. Many of you work in, in the medical field. It's, it's directly relevant to you. The healing that you do as a way of life to, to, to earn your paycheck is also a redemptive 
behavior rooted and grounded and giving significance by the fact that you share the same passion for healing people that your Lord shares. But you don't have to be in the medical profession to show Jesus' compassion to those who are hurting. We see homeless, uh, homelessness as a problem in this city and many others. We see neighbors who have no meaning in life, maybe no friends. They're isolated and alone. We see uh, any, any number of, of, ev- of evidences of the brokenness of the world. Jesus came to heal those, to restore what has been broken by sin and its effects. And we can be part now of showing what his compassion is like when we're freed up to not devote all of our attention and our energies to ourselves. Jesus and his authority, submission to that authority, gives us a rest that enables and empowers us to turn to other people. That's one of the most beautiful aspects of salvation by grace through faith. And ultimately, if we submit to Jesus' authority, our priorities will reflect his. And his chief priority was to call individuals, sinners, to repentance and faith. What it looks like for us to submit to his authority is to turn our attentions towards those in our lives who need to rest in Jesus as we have. It means spending money that we need elsewhere, perhaps, to send missionaries to places in the world we can't practically go so that people can be called to repentance and faith. It means having the awkward conversations with family members who don't know Jesus, but but who's Whose, uh, whose relationship with you makes it such that it's hard to talk about these things. You're going to have to get over that to follow Jesus and submit to his authority, the authority that he came to establish in his kingdom. Jesus' authority sets you free to rest in him and to live for the good of other people. So will you? Will you submit to him? His is not the authority of a Hitler. It's the authority of a loving shepherd. Sheep know that through obedience to their shepherd, they can rest securely, trusting in their shepherd's wisdom and power. They are set free, and we are set free, both to rest and to work for others. And that is the liberating authority of Jesus. So will you submit to him? Let's pray together. Forgive us, O Lord, for our deep self-love and for our desire to establish kingdoms of our own and help us to see the beauty that comes in willing submission to your to your reign over our lives help us to rest we pray in jesus name amen